Hey, welcome to the Colorism Healing Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. Thank you for tuning in. This episode is a recorded session of my live Wednesday writing workshop that I stream every week at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time on Instagram and Facebook. The live experience is unique and interactive, so I'd love for you to join us. For those who can't catch the lives or who want to replay the sessions for review at a later date, you can listen right here to the podcast version or view the video recording on the Colorism Healing Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please like, follow, share, and subscribe to Colorism Healing on all your favorite sites. And if you know someone who could use or appreciate any of my content, please share it with them. Now, let's let you listen. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Wednesday writing workshop. I am your host, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. Hey, Sienna. Good to see you. Hey there, the Floyd. They Floyd. Um, go ahead and say hello. Let me know where you're tuning in from. Let me know your name, your location, um, how the weather is where you are. Today's topic is colorism and education. So I also want to know, I'm curious to know how many of you on here are teachers, are parents who have um, students that go to school, that attend school? How many of you um, have educators in your family or are currently in school? How many of you are currently students? Uh, we have Jendel saying, hey, hey, Jendel on Facebook. Thank you for joining um, University Lecturer here. Awesome, that's excellent. Can you tell us what university and what you teach? That'd be very interesting to know. Janelle says University Professor and Parent of a third and first grader. Absolutely, hey. So I myself am an English professor at the University of Illinois in Springfield. And it is with great sadness that I just received an email that one of my former students passed away in a tragic accident, Deja Baldry. So I would like to dedicate this in her memory, um, do a brief moment of silence if all of you would join me. Um, yeah, so let's take a moment of silence now in honor of my former student, Deja. Yes, thank you. So sorry to hear that. Absolutely. Yeah, I literally just checked my email like two minutes before getting on the live. So it was very shocking. <laughs> um, but I think I want to continue with this live because we are talking about education. And I think this information is going to help us better serve all of our students. So I don't want to um, not do this presentation and present this topic today. Hey, Jessica, how are you? Jessica Simpson, thank you. 
Um, so a few announcements before we jump into the topic of colorism in education. Of course, I do these every week. I call them now Dr. Webb's Wednesday workshops. And um, the topics vary from week to week. So some upcoming topics are colorism in families on the 22nd. That's a big one, right? Everybody who DMs me is asking me usually about colorism happening in their families. Um, and so tag your aunts, your moms, your cousins, your siblings, your children, right? And have them watch with you so that, you know, you all can kind of get some information about how to handle colorism in families, how to recognize it, how to address it, and also kind of share your comments and raise questions in the discussion itself, right? So that's next week, we're talking about colorism in families, right? And then the week after that, it's all Q&A. It's all ask me anything. Q&A is question and answer and AMA is ask me anything, right? And I've already gotten some really great questions. I got a quite one question about someone who wants to talk about colorism and online dating, right? Somebody wanted to ask a question about the use of the term exotic, right? And why that's problematic. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting more questions over the next couple of weeks that I can answer. And of course, if you don't want to send your question in advance, you can just tune in and pose whatever questions come to mind at that time. So I'm really excited about that one. Um, uh, I'm also on Friday, I'm going to be doing a bonus live. I'll be going live with B1. Um, and we're going to be talking about loving blackness as political resistance. So you might have heard me use the name Dewan before because he watches the live sometimes. And we did an interview via his Instagram page a while back. So Facebook folks, this is Instagram only, the chat with Dewan on loving blackness as political resistance. I haven't found a way to have a guest on on Facebook and Instagram at the same time because the platforms, I don't know how they work, but if you're not like with me in person, then we can't really do a live together. So anytime I do an interview, I'll have to either do Instagram and or, or Instagram or Facebook. So that's this Friday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, right? And I always say the antidote to anti-blackness is loving blackness. So those are some upcoming events. Don't forget that today is the last day to get 20% off the Colorism Healing Anthology for the 2020 Writing Contest, right? So if you go to colorismhealing.com backslash bookstore, um, you can uh, get 20% off if you use the code LAUNCH2020, all right? Okay, so we're good. Let me see if anyone else is saying their location, what the weather is like. We have a tornado watch in Springfield. So fingers crossed that I don't get blown away during this live. Um, hello, JB1710. How are you? Loga7799. Latinxlandia. What's up, y'all? We got B. Some, I, I'm not going to try with the screen names, y'all, because I'm going to mess them up. Um, Zoom is the way to go and do both. Okay, so I can do um, Facebook and Instagram via Zoom. I did not know that. So Washington State, Pacific Coast area, Leah Hen. What's up, Leah? 
How are y'all? So again, the topic is colorism and education. Oh, and also I was um, encouraged to let people know how they can support the work and the weekly lives. So if you're interested in offering financial support other than buying the books or buying a t-shirt, um, then you can cash at me at Colorism Healing or Venmo me at Colorism Healing. All right, so I didn't see, I saw one person, right, said, say that they were a lecturer at a university, right? They Floyd. Um, I know we have a couple of other educators. I know Jendel's a professor. Hey, Vincent. Um, but many of you probably know educators, right, or have kids who are in school. And so that's going to be important for you to know this information as well. So I have five issues, like five general points that I want to make about colorism education. And then I have four strategies we can use to improve the condition, learning conditions for all students. So the first, we have to remember that public education and compulsory education has historically been wielded as a form of oppression and dominance, right? And so we talk about education being this panacea, right? If everyone gets educated, then we'll have um, better equality and that sort of thing, right? But I want us to think today more about is it really just education in general or do we actually have to pay attention to the way that we're being educated, the how we're being educated and by whom and towards what ends, right? Um, and even before public school education was broadly available, right? It was a tool to perpetuate the economic divide, right? So even before public education was a thing, you had to have money in order to get educated because it was only offered via private tutoring or private, you know, school off options, right? And so education has always been resulted in larger socioeconomic social disparities, right, historically speaking. And then when public education became available for all children, um, it was often used to make sure that you were learning what the state wanted you to learn. And we still see that be an issue today, right? And so it's not just, oh, okay, great, all students have access to education, but for our purposes in thinking about anti-racist education and colorism and, you know, decolonizing our curriculums, we have to realize that um, the big project of education in many, many instances around the globe was for the colonizer, the European colonizers, to dominate and control the minds and the attitudes and the values of the people, of the population. We saw that here in the United States with um, reservation schools, right, where um, Native American children and indigenous children were sent away to these boarding schools and were met with violence and had their culture stripped from them, were um, oftentimes murdered under mysterious circumstances, right, um, and just, the cultural oppression and cultural violence that happened under the guise of educating people and making them more quote-unquote civilized, right? So we have to keep in mind that education in and of itself, right, um, could be a tool for good or bad, right? It could be a tool for something positive and constructive, but it could also be a very damaging tool. 
Um, and so we have to be vigilant about that because so many places and instances of education have been used in very harmful ways. The second point, so I, I'm actually going to get done on time today because my, my notes are down to just one page, <laughs> is that the vast majority of teachers are white, right? Even um, in universities, right? But definitely in K-12 schools as well. And in K-12 settings, majority of the teachers are white women specifically, right? And we know, um, I remember reading an article that talked about how white women sometimes fly under the radar as being perpetrators of white supremacy. But I think the classroom setting is a very clear example and instance of how white women very much participate in helping to spread the ideology of white dominance and the ideology of black inferiority or native inferiority, right? Um, by teaching the curriculum, by enforcing certain cultural norms, by enforcing certain cultural values, right? And also just um, the, the harm that comes as a result of obliviousness, right? So it's not that they're always intentionally uh, asserting these values or, you know, causing this kind of harm in the classrooms, but sometimes ignorance, right, or obliviousness can result in the same kind of harm or damage to the psyche of young black and brown children, right? So that's one thing to remember about the context of education. And even at the university and college level where I teach now, there's still a severe lack of representation amongst faculty, right, of color, right? Especially darker skinned faculty of color, um, women of color faculty, right? And so we have to be mindful that all of these white educators will have a lot of blind spots, right? That will could negatively and typically do negatively influence students of color in their classrooms. Um, Logos 7799 says yes in predominantly black schools. This is true, this is a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Even in um, schools where the students are predominantly black or Hispanic, a majority of the teachers are still usually white, right? Even in 2020, a student can go their entire K-12 education and college education and never have a teacher who looks like them, right? Or who comes from a similar background as they do. Thank you all to all the new folks who are joining. We are talking about colorism and education. I'm making a few points about the problem of colorism in education, and then we're going to get into some strategies for what we can do about it. Um, so the third thing, in terms of the effects of colorism in education, right? So colorism, the research studies show us that colorism in education affects the quantity of schooling that you receive, right? And so we see disparities amongst African Americans and Hispanics and Latinos and even Asian ethnicities where there's a variation in darker skinned versus lighter skinned people of that group in which you are more likely to attain more years of schooling, right? You're more likely to go beyond high school. You're more likely to go to college and finish college if you're lighter skinned. And that has been consistent throughout the decades, right? So even since the civil rights movement, that disparity still persists. And so even though lighter skinned students might have improved over the decades, the 
um, outcomes and the performance levels for dark-skinned students have remained the same for, the, for several decades, right? And so we see that educational divide continuing to persist even within our racial group as African-Americans or Latinx students, right? Um, but the quantity of schooling, right, is a direct result of the quality of schooling as well. And so that's one of the major points I want to get into, um, is that colorism definitely has a significant impact on the quality of your experience while you're in school, right? And a lot of that has to do with implicit bias, but also explicit prejudice, right? Um, we have, I can remember even, you know, I'm 35, and even during my childhood, there were explicit prejudices that teachers perpetuated against me as a dark-skinned girl student, right? And so I'm talking here, we, we talk a lot about the bullying that happens amongst students, but right now I'm talking about specifically educators, teachers and administrators and staff, and how their interactions with students that are steeped in colorism will have a negative impact on darker-skinned students, right? Um, and so some teachers of, of any race, right? So this happens, we have to be cautious too, not to assume that only white teachers will have a negative bias against darker-skinned students, because oftentimes African-American teachers and Hispanic teachers and Asian teachers, right, will also have a negative bias against darker-skinned students. And oftentimes, way too many times, that's an explicit prejudice, right? Um, but then often it's an implicit bias, right? And so it's not that they're always consciously saying, oh, this dark-skinned girl is deviant or a problem or causing issues in my class. Um, but because of that implicit bias, it's going to impact the interaction that they have with that student. And a lot of times, I think as teachers, I'm speaking to my teachers specifically here, but also parents or anyone who's involved in education, tangentially or not, to be aware that um, if there's an instance where, for example, a dark-skinned girl does talk back, we have to question ourselves as educators and say, <laughs> was there an instance in which my implicit bias made me look at the student a different way, made me raise my voice at that particular student, made me single out that student, or made me call out that student when I don't do that or don't treat other students that way, right? And so, so, so often we look at the behavior of the student, but because implicit bias, and again, explicit prejudice is a real thing in classrooms, we also have to be aware and cognizant of how mistreatment does cause sometimes students to retaliate. Um, on Instagram, Dendell is saying, very true, nice. She says, yes, integrate our own thoughts, right? So we have to be self-reflective. We have to practice self-reflection. And again, take the Harvard Implicit Association test. We are not doing a service to our community if we assume we have no biases, right? People who take it are often surprised. Sometimes they're not surprised. The vast majority of people who do take it have a pro, a positive bias for light skin and a negative bias against dark skin, right? Um, and so it's good for you to know as a parent or teacher or coach or principal um, or mentor or police officer, right? It's good for you to know if you are inclined to have a negative bias against a certain group of people. 
so that you can mitigate that and check for that. Um, also the implicit bias and the prejudices. So this is another reason why it's going to affect the quality of education that darker skinned children and students, even at the university level receive is because it has been documented <laughs> that darker skinned people are perceived as less intelligent and that lighter skinned people of color are perceived as more intelligent and more competent, right? And so if we're operating as educators or administrators or even student peers under that bias, under that implicit bias that, okay, this student is darker skinned, so they're probably not as intelligent, so I'm not going to challenge them as much as I'm going to challenge the lighter skinned students, or I'm not going to um, push them to achieve greater potential because I might be assuming subconsciously or unconsciously that they've exceeded their potential, that they've met their limit, right? Whereas we might be more supportive and nurturing of the lighter skinned students, right? Because of these various biases. And then there's also the bias and the perception that darker skinned people are more criminal, more deviant, right? And have less of a moral compass, right? And so one of the research studies that I cite every time because it's extremely disturbing, take note of this, is that girls with very dark skin are three times more likely to be suspended for infractions than girls with very light skin tones. So three times more likely to be suspended for similar behaviors. And so that can only be explained by prejudice and bias right that says even again unconsciously or subconsciously we um, are more likely to give light-skinned students the benefit of the doubt right or because we're already assuming the worst about that dark-skinned student right we engage in more punitive actions we take more punitive actions against them right or we um don't step in to advocate for the darker skinned students as much, right? So maybe the light skinned girl and the dark skinned girl both get written up, but you'll have a teacher come in and say, well, I, I know so-and-so, right? And she's a good kid, like this is her first infraction, but that other kid over there, she's a troublemaker, right? And I had this experience um, when I was in first grade, maybe this white girl, it might've been five or six, and this white girl called me the N-word, and so I hit her, <laughs> just being transparent here. Um, what's up folks, we're talking about colorism and education for all, the, all of you who just joined. Um, so she called me the N-word and you know, even though she was white and not a lighter skinned black person, the implicit bias was very clear to me even at five or six, right? The way the teachers and other students, right, rushed to her defense, and you know they you know just were like oh wow i can't believe ashley got in a fight like no no way right but then when they mentioned my name it was like oh, oh okay yeah you know <laughs> of course um and so that's the kind of experiences that we we know that darker skinned black children are having to endure on top of the task of learning, right? On top of the task of learning your multiplications and your timetables, you have to deal with the reality that your teachers look at you and assume deviance, right? Um, 
when I was teaching high school, right, in terms of perceptions of intelligence and behavior, this was a very clear example to me because I had two fraternal twins. They were two African-American boys and they were fraternal twins, right? So they, because they were twins, we know that socioeconomically, things were pretty much the same at home, right? They were raised in the same environment, had the same parents, right? Had access to the same things in terms of their home environment. And yet one of the fraternal twins was tracked into special education and the other fraternal twin was an honor student. Can you guess the difference in their physical appearances? You guessed it. <laughs> so the darker skinned fraternal twin with a broad nose and bigger lips and kinkier hair was tracked into special education and was not um, applauded or affirmed as an intelligent or capable student, right? Even though he played sports. His brother, however, also played sports, but he had, his skin tone was lighter. Not much lighter, but a few shades lighter. His hair texture seemed a little different, but he wore a different haircut as well. And his features, he had a thinner nose, like a more pointed nose. And the affirmations that he received from peers and teachers, it was very evident to me that there had been colorism at play over the years in both of these young men's lives, right? So I, you know, met them in high school, but I'm sure that that colorism uh, was impacting the differential outcomes in their education since the beginning, since kindergarten. People were probably, you know, looking at the darker skinned brother and not, again, not challenging him as much, not giving him as much support or um, assuming that he can't handle more complex math problems, right? And so over time, that's why he probably ended up in special education, whereas his brother did not. Um, on Instagram, we have comments. That's what I thought. Um, <laughs> oh, now I'm just pretty says, as you should, LOL, about the, uh, the N-word. Um, and then K Dramai Oma. I don't actually know how to pronounce your name, but I talk to you all the time on Instagram, but I've never said your name. Um, it says that's what I thought. Uh, hey, Coast Live Woke, good to see you on here. Audrey Potato says, Whoa, that example about the fraternal twins is so sad. Yes. Um, and so, kind of related to that story, right? These negative experiences that we have with not again not just bullying from peers which is what a lot of people talk about with colorism but your actual teachers the people in authority the people who have power over you in the classroom especially at the elementary in the foundational years right is cumulative and we know those of us who are educators and who do work with youth we know that there's such a thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy we know that there's such a thing as internalized um, beliefs, right? So if all of my teachers are telling me I'm bad, if all of the principals and the APs and the deans are telling me I'm bad, then I'm going to internalize that and I'm going to make that a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And then on the same token, the self-fulfilling prophecy can benefit those students who are, are benefiting from a pro-light-skinned bias, right? So if so-and-so is the good kid, she's so good and she's so smart, right? And look at her, she's always, you know, on time and turning in her homework. And oh, she's so pretty too, you know? We just love her to death, right? That also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So that student is getting 
confidence. Their confidence is increasing, right? They're more likely to um, try out for the cheerleading team or run for class president, right? Whereas the other student who's being um, only receiving negative feedback is having a self-fulfilling prophecy that says, okay, well, people assume I'm not smart. I must not be smart. Um, Dora McKnight Lowe says, good info. Thanks for sharing. So true. Um, remember that, you know, these are very interactive. So I'm always stopping to answer comments and read comments and answer questions. So any questions that come up, just let me know. Um, and then the last thing I'll do um, before I go into strategies and what we can do if you're concerned about colorism in your child's school or if you're a teacher or educator wanting to do something about colorism where you work um, is the white supremacist curriculum, right? And so going back to my original point about the history of schooling in colonized places is that the colonizer's history is what gets taught. The colonizer's values is what, get ta what gets taught, right? The um, standards for what is considered decorum in a classroom, the standards for what is considered intelligent, right? Forms of speaking, ways of speaking, uses of language, dress, what's considered professional dress are appropriate for school, right? The kinds of examples that they have in textbooks, the images that we see in textbooks, right? There's a popular image of a, a textbook from India, like an old textbook from India, where they're teaching students the words to read the words good and bad and ugly and poor, right? And so the pictures that they use to teach students how to read those words are of a blonde-haired, white-looking Indian girl for the, you can guess it, yes, for the, the positive traits. And then they use very dark brown Indian girls and kids um, to illustrate the negative words like bad or ugly, right? And so we have to think generationally about how who writes the textbooks, right? The required reading, it always bothered me that Shakespeare was required reading in every high school curriculum. Again, I'm an English teacher, right? Why? Why? <laughs> and I know my diehard literature people will say, well, you have to read Shakespeare. And I'm like, no, you have to read Zora Neale Hurston. Okay, you have to read some Alice Walker and some Toni Morrison and some James Baldwin, some Langston Hughes, some Gwendolyn Brooks. That's what we need to be reading, right? Like, okay, Shakespeare has some interesting stories, but in the grand scheme of literature, right, the fact that Shakespeare is required reading across the globe um, is a form of white supremacist curriculum. It's an example of it, right? Um, so my question for you, before I go into strategies, is what experiences have you had or observed in school settings that are or might be colorism? So some people might not know if something they observe in school is colorism. And so that's why I wanted to have this discussion so that we are able to recognize it when we see it, right? So if you're um, not confident in your ability to be able to say, oh, that was colorism. A student said, what? That was colorism. A teacher did what? That was colorism. I want us to be able to leave here recognizing the signs of it before we go. Um, Lil Miss Who says, I was getting into it with one of my friends and she says she experiences colorism because she's mixed and has been told she's too light to be black. 
Well, so that's more so an issue of racial category, right? And so mixed race issues are related to colorism. Um, mixed race people don't have a specific look, right? So some mixed race people can be as brown as me, right? And some, some mixed race people look white, right? So there is definitely colorism amongst mixed race people. Um, but the distinguishing between who's black and who's not, right, is more so an issue of the racial category itself, right? And trying to decide what does it mean to be black versus colorism, which is we are all the same race, but there's a hierarchy amongst us, right? Um, so again, if any of you have suggestions or examples that might be colorism, I know I stated a few. Um, again, the fraternal twins was just clear as day to me. Um, Ephraim Ledette says, listening with pride. Hey, Ephraim. Um, says, Ephraim says, exactly. Jindel says, darker skinned students being skipped over for leadership opportunities like student council or for class awards or for cheerleading dance teams, etc." Yes. So I know like Zora Neale Hurston, actually speaking of Zora Neale Hurston, <laughs> in her uh, autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, she used the example of teachers always choosing the light-skinned students to play the leading role in a play, right? Or to be the spokesperson of the class, or to give the announcements on the intercom, right? Or to be representatives of the school or the class in some way, right? And so that's something we need to look at, right? Um, if you, as an educator or as a, you know, PTA member, are getting to choose students to rep be representatives of any sort, whether it's student council or um, being captain of the cheerleading team or captain of the dance team, right? Um, look at your patterns. Do you always tend to choose the lighter skinned students or do you spread out the affirmation and the love and the opportunity, right? And even if you say, oh, well, my choice is based on performance or my choice is based on um, personality or character, right? Again, take the Harvard Implicit Association test just to, just to verify whether or not you might not be having some implicit bias when it comes to that perception, right? Um, people who think for example, that white, a white man is professional, they don't, they don't realize that they have a bias, right? So you might not realize that you're making these choices and having these, um, making these decisions from a place of bias, right? And that's scary to look into, especially if you're a teacher of color, if you're a person of color, it's scary to say, oh wait, whoa, I have been um, prejudging darker skinned students as being too loud or being, the ghetto ones, right? Um, Dora McKnight says, you are right on. JB1710 says, you have to be honest with yourself if we are going to heal. Absolutely, we have to be honest with ourselves if we're going to heal. And we have to be honest with ourselves if we are not, if we're going to stop the cycle from moving forward, right? Okay, so strategies. Um, I haven't seen... Um, Jindel offers some other examples, right, of colorism, how, what colorism might look like in schools. Um, but I think my first strategy is to be able to recognize it, right? So just to survey my audience, give me a thumbs up if you feel like you could recognize an instance of colorism in the classroom or on the schoolyard if you saw it, right? I just want to see where my folks are at, right? So thumbs up if you feel 
generally confident at being able to recognize an instance of colorism if you see it. Um, Jindel says, over praise of good qualities, looks, academics, etc., and higher and lighter-skinned students, while not acknowledging the same qualities in darker-skinned students. Right. So Jindel on Facebook is saying that even if two students are performing the same way, but we only um, see the accomplishment for lighter-skinned students, then that's another form of colorism, right? So if we're celebrating students who did well on a project, then we have to make sure we're you know, affirming and celebrating all students equally, right? And not putting a spotlight on the lighter-skinned students and ignoring the accomplishments of the darker-skinned student. Okay, excellent, I have a lot of thumbs up. Good, okay, so cool, we can move on to the second strategy. So since we can recognize it, the second thing is to respond to it, right? Um, the first reason we wanna respond in the moment, if we can, if it's safe, um, and if it's uh, practical, but sometimes we have to take a risk, is because silence is complicit, right? Silence is condoning it, right? And so I use the example of if we see a student say something in our presence and we do not respond, um, then we appear to be condoning the behavior. Even if in our hearts we don't, um, our silence in a, in a moment or in an instance to other students, especially and to our coworkers and our peers, we look just as complicit. We look as if we condone that behavior. So we want to respond and as much as possible respond in the moment um, for the perpetrator who's enacting it to learn, but also for the witnesses, for witnesses to that instance. We want them to know that there's a different way to think, that there's something else that could have been said, right? That there's someone here who is showing up as an ally in that moment, right? Um, Vincent says all of that. And I think too, uh, for the student who's receiving the colorism, right? Who's the target of the colorism in that moment, you'll be surprised at what a world of difference you can make by responding and standing up for them in that moment, right? So if a student is being unnecessarily harshly disciplined, right, or penalized, and you as a faculty member with power step in and say, wait, you know, yes, the student made an error, right, or did something out of line, but I think this uh, punishment is excessive or harsh, right? So speaking up in the moment is very important. But even if we can't respond in the moment, um, we can at least try to go back and counsel our mentor, both the person who was the target of the colorism, but also the person who perpetuated the colorism, right? So we can follow up, right? Not just respond in the moment, but follow up with that person and make sure they know and understand why what they did was an act of colorism, right? And give them resources. So my third, first two things is recognize. The second thing was respond. And the third thing is resources. So anyone who witnesses an instance of colorism, right? You can give the perpetrator of that behavior a resource, right? Make sure that they know, okay, this is colorism and what you just did was an instance of colorism, right? And then the fourth thing is to reach out, right? So this is a way to be proactive. Proactive um, 
efforts to educate the school, the wider school community. So no longer just focusing on responding to instances of it, but looking at ways to educate people in advance to create a culture in the school. You can reach out to the local community, invite parents, right? To inform them about issues of colorism, um, you know, advocate for trainings in your school uh, so that the culture of the school and the larger community, the local community, can start to change and evolve. Does that make sense to folks? Do we have any questions about colorism in school? So I'm going to start to wrap it up because I said I was going. This was going to be a short one, but it's already 4:40. Um, so drop your questions in the comments if you have them or other insights. Other insights or suggestions that you have for recognizing, responding giving resources or reaching out, right? Of course, y'all know I always gotta leave with homework and affirmations. And homework is very appropriate for this particular live since we're talking about school and education. So I have two things that I want you to do for homework. And you can report back to me on the next live next week. Is first is that if you know a teacher of any kind, whether it's a teacher who's your neighbor or a teacher of your actual child, right is to make sure they're aware of colorism right you can scapegoat me you can say you know i was watching this instagram live and this girl was on there talking about colorism in schools have you ever heard of colorism <laughs> right um so you can make sure that the teachers especially if you have a child right before they go especially a young child right before the start of the school year just email the teacher and say hey you know these are some things um that I've been made aware of as a parent and I just want to make sure that you have some resources or you know, I wanna gauge or know if you're familiar with these terms, familiar with these concepts, etc. Jadela is saying, also think about representation in your classrooms and schools. Pictures, posters, magazines, authors, etc. that are darker skinned should be featured. Absolutely, Dr. Crutchfield, thank you for that suggestion. And actually, that was one of the things I was going to recommend in terms of looking at the curriculum and ways that we can change it, is that um, we focus a lot on racial diversity, but if we only focus on racial diversity, then we might end up with diverse people who all happen to be light-skinned, right? We might end up with diverse races and diverse ethnicities, but we have to also be aware if the Latinx person that's represented and the African-American person that's represented and the Asian person that's represented, right? And not to get into a discussion about tokenism, because that's also a thing. But even though we have all these different ethnicities and racial backgrounds represented, we also have to look and see, is everyone from these different groups light-skinned? Do they all have European phenotypes, right? So yeah, they might all be racially diverse, but they all look very similar, right? They all look the same in terms of their complexions and their features. Um, the second thing I want you to do for homework uh, is to look for ways to change your curriculum. So this is mainly for my educators on here, but also for parents, right? Because we know y'all can be proactive and, and make suggestions and offer resources or anything like that. But look for ways to change your curriculum. For me as an English professor, um, and you know, even when I was teaching high school English several years ago, it's easy because I teach authors, right? So it's easy for me to say, okay, let me make sure that my authors that I teach are diverse, right? If you're teaching math, 
you might not be picking and choosing diverse mathematicians, but if you're doing a word problem, for example, that's illustrated, make sure you have diversity in the illustrations of the word problem, right? Even diversity is in the name, right? So thinking about not always defaulting to Sally and Ted had five apples, right? You can have a Ty Quincia who had six barrettes, right? Or you can have a, um, an Andre who had eight basketballs, right? So you can have diversity even in, you know, the non-humanities types of fields. So those are some homework assignments for you depending on, you know, your role in education. And then my affirmation before I go, wait, I see another comment I need to read. Um, yes, I've heard it's important for teachers like me to audit ourselves. Who do we call on most? Oh, that's a good one, Audrey Potatum. Who do we call on most? Whose work do we share as examples, etc.? Yes, I'm glad I caught that comment and read it out loud so that it could be on the recorded video for Facebook and YouTube. Um, but a lot of times, I know even as a teacher for myself, it's tempting to rely on calling on the students that we're most comfortable with, right? This student seems receptive to me, so I'm going to just rely on calling to them, right? Versus the student that, you know, there might be a little more tension with that student for various reasons, or, um, you know, we might not be as familiar with the language that that student learns in, or we might not be as familiar with the um, forms of intelligence that that student displays, right? So very often we tend to um, call on and affirm the students who reflect back to us our own mode of intelligence, or our own cultural norms and values, right? So looking for that diversity as well. Dora McKnight Lowe says, a sub at a high school, and I'm going to share your work with some of the teachers. Well, thank you, Dora. Um, I appreciate that. Um, so I'll also say that I am more than happy to do a training with teachers. So if there's a group of teachers you know who want to really dig in and do a longer session on strategies and tactics and research and curriculum planning, um, just email me or DM me. So your affirmation, and I hope we use these affirmations for our students as well, is that you are brilliant and you are capable. And these affirmations, again, are freely given to some students and are rarely given to others, right? Um, <laughs> now I'm just pretty says, come on names. Excellent points, Ari Matt. Absolutely, y'all. So I'm going to let y'all go. I want to respect your time, especially since so many of you come back each week to see me time and time again. I don't want to hold you longer than necessary. Don't forget, Friday I'll be doing an interview with Dewan. On Tuesday I'm doing an interview with Michelle A, but it'll be on her Instagram page. And then I'll be back the next Wednesday to talk about colorism and families. And we know that that's um, a big one for a lot of people. Um, all right, y'all, don't forget, if, again, if you want to support in any way, I have books for sale, I have some products on Colorism Healing, t-shirts, um, and then also Cash App and Venmo at Colorism Healing. Um, and I will see y'all next week. I'll see y'all Friday, and then I'll see y'all Tuesday, and then I'll see y'all Wednesday. And then in between, in the interim, in the comments, and the DMs, I'll just be seeing y'all all around. Okay, love y'all. Bye. Hey again, 
before you go, I just want to say thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with someone you know. I hope you can tune in for the next one. And until then, I'm wishing you lots of love.